Today, we are so excited to welcome back friend of the podcast, Dr. Jeremy Sharp. Dr. Sharp is a licensed psychologist who owns and operates the Colorado Center for Assessment and Psychology, and he also hosts the Testing Psychologist podcast, which we've been featured on as well. We dig into assessments today and when and why you should reassess your learner. He talks about changes in functioning and changes in circumstances and environment as being two reasons to have your learner reassessed. We also discuss circumstances under which a reassessment would be required, and we talk about what happens when and if parents disagree and the accessibility of reports from a non-educator reader. He further joins us for an extended conversation on Patreon to discuss what to do if a reassessment yields different results from a previous assessment. If you have not yet joined us over on Patreon, Patreon is our community where you can support the work that we're doing here at the podcast for a mere $5 a month. And you also get access as a thank you to all our extended conversations with professionals that we've had on the podcast over the years. Additionally, if you'd like to support us at the $10 a month level, you'll get all that access. Plus you'll get episodes a week early. You can join us over on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash learn smarter podcast. Let's dig it. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer you have to learn smarter the educational therapy podcast hi smarties welcome to episode 268 of learn smarter the educational therapy podcast i'm stephanie pitts and i'm rachel cap and today we have a very good friend of the podcast dr jeremy sharp with us hi jeremy hey y'all Thanks for having me back. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) So if you don't know, Jeremy has a podcast, but we're going to let him tell us all the things about him because we love him. So please tell us. Yeah. So I'm a licensed psychologist in Colorado. I specialize in pediatric assessment and spend most of my time these days directing our practice. We have a relatively large group practice here in Colorado doing counseling and assessment for all sorts of things. And like you said, I host a podcast called The Testing Psychologist, where I talk about the business and practice of neuropsychological assessment, which is a blast, as you all know, to host a podcast. So yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. So you've been on our podcast before, and we're going to go ahead and link those episodes in the show notes. And we've been on his podcast. So okay, assessment. Let's get clear about what you mean by assessment? Because maybe there's people, this is the first time listening, and they don't even know what we're talking about. So what is an assessment and why would you have your child assessed? Yeah, great place to start. So when I say assessment, I am talking about what a lot of folks think colloquially will call testing or a neuropsych eval or a psychoed eval. For me, it's all kind of under the same umbrella. It's a a comprehensive process where in this case, we'll talk about kids, you know, where we work with kiddos, we administer a variety of measures to see what their brains are up to. So we look at all the different aspects of intelligence, academic performance, memory, learning, attention, personality, emotional functioning, all sorts of things. And we pull all of that information together and try to create a coherent picture for parents and for kids to help them understand what their kids are really good at and if there are some areas that their kids might struggle and and how to support them in those areas. So often, you know, parents will come 
with a question or they'll be referred by another provider with specific questions like does my kid have autism you know we answer that question a lot that's a question an assessment can answer or does my kid have adhd or does my kid have dyslexia or i think my kid has all those things can you help me understand which is most important so those are some of the specific questions we answer and sometimes we just get referrals from folks who are just curious or like they know something's off, but can't put their finger on exactly what. And we do our best to answer those questions through this comprehensive process. I like it. I have a question. Is there an age, this is just random and you might not know, but is there an age where it tends to be you get a flood of at that age, they start to get tested? Mm, yeah, we seem to get a lot of kids between, let's say, seven and ten. I'm just going to ballpark that thinking anecdotally, because I think it's that time where, you know, we have a couple things that happen in like first and second grade. So that's when kids are expected to start knowing how to read. And that's when we get out of kindergarten and expectations for behavior go up as well. So kids are expected to, you know, sit a little more still and keep track of more stuff and maybe get some homework done. And uh, it's grown out of the toddler period, you know, where they're actually turning into kids who have responsibilities and expectations. Little people. Yeah. So we get a lot of that. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And parents will, will at that point kind of say, okay, they haven't grown out of it. Yes. Whatever it is, they're waiting for them to grow out of it. That makes sense to me. Yes. So oftentimes this is a question that we get asked and let's take it from an expert. What are the circumstances under which you would have your child reassessed? Because oftentimes it's not just that initial assessment, if it happened between seven and 10 or even older, oftentimes this is a process that you have to revisit, right? Yeah. I think there are many cases where a reassessment might be appropriate. So I think we could probably boil it down to uh, changes in functioning or changes in circumstance. So what I mean by that is if you see a notable change in your kid's behavior or academic performance or social engagement, you know, any of those dimensions, if something changes kind of out of the blue, so to speak, that's a really good reason to think about a reassessment because that tells me that something has shifted, whether it's in their brain or in their personality or uh, maybe in the environment that we could go back and, and see what's happening, right? Associated with that is if the kiddo has a medical event, you know, like a head injury, of course, is a big one, or um, maybe they had a serious illness, or I can't think of other examples, there are plenty, but things that, you know, may truly affect their health or their, you know, their cognitive functioning, or you think it might, right? So that could be like the kid that was getting all really good grades, and then all of a sudden is not getting good grades. It's a great example. Mm-hmm. The kid that had a lot of friends all of a sudden doesn't have a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. The kid who was kind and polite and followed the rules and then all of a sudden they're not. Yeah. 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 But could it go the other way? Could it go from having no friends to all of a sudden having friends? Would that be a reason to get reassessed? I wish that it was because I wish we paid more attention to why things are going well. That doesn't happen very often. People don't come to see us because things are going well all of a sudden. 
but it could. <laughs> they could. So yeah, the second part of that then is changes in circumstance, which to me encompasses changes in environment. So, you know, COVID is a great example of this, like major shift in the world fabric, you know, and how people are learning. It could be something as simple as transitioning from elementary school to middle school, middle school to high school. It could be a traumatic event in the individual or family's life. It could be any of those things that happen environmentally where there's a transition point or an inflection point, And we just want to go see how that affected the kiddo or the family. Any outside things that you have to have a reassessment every blank number of years or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a couple situations I could think of that we would do that. So one is in the school environment. So you all work with kids on IEPs all the time, I would imagine. So typically they will do a triennial IEP, right? So every three years, kids are getting reassessed for their IEP. That's a that's a pretty common example. Um, we don't have super strict guidelines like that in private practice necessarily, but I tend to advise parents, like if there's no reason Otherwise, to get a reassessment, I'll say, like, come back and see me in fifth or sixth grade because of that transition to middle school, and then come back and see me in eighth or ninth or maybe 10th grade, because then we're talking about, you know, transition to high school and or transition out of high school. So that's about as formal as I would get in private practice. The other situation is in hospital settings, they will sometimes assess kids very frequently, like, you know, pre and post cancer treatment, for example, or pre and post epilepsy surgery, you know, or something like that, where they're trying to measure change after intervention, essentially. So yeah, there are a few situations like that where, yeah, it's a little more structured, you know, times when we would definitely want to do a reassessment. And that's not even getting into like their treatment environments or like inpatient facility, you know, things like that, where it's super clear, like we need a pre and post assessment, but I'm just kind of talking about run-of-the-mill private practice. Yeah, that makes sense. But what about like getting accommodations from the college board or things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one. So we do see a lot of kids in high school um, around ninth or 10th grade when parents have their eye on that. Going to college is also a big one. So if they're going to transition you know, to college, they'll often want an updated assessment. MCAT, LSAT, GRE, those are all those are all points where an updated assessment might be helpful. I mean, typically it's a, I guess you would call it a statute of limitations of sorts where those standardized tests will require, for better or for worse, updated testing within a three-year period or a five-year period. Those are the two you know, most traditional periods that you have to have testing to be done. That makes sense. When they come back for an assessment, do you do the same full assessment or do you do partial assessments? Mm. Yes, it really depends. It really depends on the gap. So typically, like if we're reassessing a kid within, let's say within a a year, um, typically we're not going to do a full comprehensive battery, like where we're doing updated IQ and academic functioning and executive functioning and everything that we would usually do for an initial evaluation, unless there's reason to, you know, unless there's like a major change in functioning. What we do in those cases is kind of an abbreviated battery. Like we might just focus on whatever the targeted question is. Often it's something like, I think my kiddo is 
depressed now, or I think my kiddo's more anxious now, or, you know, the teacher has noticed some academic concerns. Can we target those things? Let's say they have a diagnosis of ADHD. Are you going to check again to still see if that diagnosis is accurate? Mm, Without a compelling reason to check it, we usually don't. I mean, we assume like ADHD and autism and dyslexia, these are all neurodevelopmental disorders, right? Which theoretically means that that's how they were born, right? It's in their brain and it can get better and the symptoms can, you know, improve or not improve, but it's there. So we just assume that it's going to be there. Now, if the parent comes to us and they're like, hey, this is a great example, actually, like we just found out, like the kid just disclosed that during that whole time, you know, before and after our first evaluation, they were being abused by a relative. Then we might go back and say, okay, we didn't know that at the time. Mm. Certainly trauma symptoms can masquerade as any number of other things, you know, like ADHD symptoms or, you know, even learning issues. And so that might be a case where we go back and say, okay, let's really reconsider this and do a full kind of updated diagnostic picture. That's interesting to me. Yeah. But typically we would not like go back and revalidate ADHD. Yeah. Now, if we're doing a an updated eval, say like I test a kid in third grade and diagnose ADHD and dyslexia, let's say, and then they come back in sixth grade, then yeah, we would do a pretty comprehensive updated eval because you know, their emotional functioning might change. Yeah, they've grown a lot. Maybe they've improved a lot with academic intervention. Yeah, maybe their executive functioning is taking a bit of a dive as the responsibilities increase. So yeah, we would go back and likely do a more comprehensive eval at that point. What if parents really disagree with the results of an initial assessment? Maybe it's not one that you did. Maybe it is one that you did, but parents really disagree. What is sort of the appropriate next step? This is something that I've had to talk with parents about in private practice. Do we recommend getting another assessment entirely? Do you have somebody kind of look over a record review and kind of just look at the data? What are your thoughts in that scenario? Yeah, I think a lot of us are of a similar mind with this and that we never want anyone to have to seek a second opinion because that means that we got it wrong in some form or fashion or someone perceived that we got it wrong. Right. And deep down, of course, we want the best care for kids possible, right? So if there's someone who can who can get a different perspective, that's going to be really valuable. So let's just take one of those examples where the parent disagrees with our results. Like if I test a kid and parents disagree. So one thing right off the bat is like, we probably wouldn't know that. Okay. So right. very rare that parents will come back and say, we disagree with this. Can we do something different? You know, or can we get an updated opinion? So that's one factor just right off the bat that makes it hard to answer this question in some regards. Are you getting parents who are coming from other people disagreeing with the results? Yeah, that happens a lot. So I know that it's happening with us, but if it's happening, you know, for other people, (laughs) uh, where folks come from other practices, I'm sure they go to other practices too. 
Mm-hmm. So those are tricky situations. I'm just, you know, being transparent because what we'll typically do in those situations is I will say, bring me the previous evaluation and let me look over it and see if I can do any different or if I disagree with the results or if there's even any room to do an updated assessment here. I like to give other practitioners the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Rather than just like jumping in and saying, Hey, of course I'll retest your kid. And, you know, I got out of the early in my career. I think I had a, uh, what will we call this? Like a savior complex or something where like people would come and I'll be like, Oh yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll do it better. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I guarantee I have something brand new to add to this picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally kidding. Yeah. But yes. Yeah, so, you know, as time has gone on, yeah, the answer is now not like, let's get them on the schedule. I'll figure out something different. This is going to be revolutionary for you. It's more like, let me take a look at that eval and see if there's even any room to do something different. And then in those cases, sometimes, like sometimes there is, you know, I'll look and say, hmm, I don't know about this or this data looks weird or why didn't they do this test or whatever. And then we might proceed to a more comprehensive eval or I might just do kind of a record review and talk with the parents and say, well, here's what I think you know, you might want to pay attention to, and here's maybe something that got missed, but not a huge deal. Here's some strategies, you know, and just do more of like a consultation than a a comprehensive evaluation. That makes sense. It does make sense. So it's really a case by case. Yeah. Yeah. And over time, I mean, if you're practicing in any kind of area where relationships matter, I don't think you want that reputation as the practitioner who comes in and cuts everybody else off at the knees and throws them under the bus and so forth. So there's a professional liability there too. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about how maybe parents don't agree with an assessment and they seek you out, but let's talk about if one parent agrees and one parent disagrees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds challenging and complicated. You are correct. (laughs) yes yes it is challenging and complicated i mean ethically speaking like what do you do the hope is always that we can see this a little bit ahead of time like we might get some some indicators like one parent's hesitant to even start the eval Mm -hmm. one parent is participating less in the the initial interview um or has a vastly different opinion you know something like that like hopefully we get some signs that this might be coming down the road but if somehow get to the end of the evaluation and one parent is totally not on board one parent is totally on board it's very rare. It's not like we're going to do another evaluation especially that quickly but what I do like to do is almost like a motivational interviewing sort of situation where we're kind of talking with that parent who is not on board and just getting a sense of what about this process could have been different. Like where do you have the most hesitation? What do you really disagree with? Like just trying to provide space to have that conversation. Make them feel heard. Sure. Absolutely. And what we find most of the time is that for a lot of us, and I've been on this side, you know, my kids have been evaluated for different reasons. Like there's fear and vulnerability for parents wrapped up in this process. And it's a a not small part of the process, right? Like you bring your kid 
they're a reflection of you both genetically and environmentally. And, you know, parents have their own stuff from childhood and whatever challenges they may have faced that they don't want their kid to face. You know, there's so many layers to this that often I'm just trying to get down to whatever fear or vulnerability might be involved for parents. And that's usually what's happening. It's not just like, I disagree. My kid doesn't do any of these things. This is ridiculous. It's it's a lot of, I'm afraid of the outcome if I let this be true for my kid. Fair enough. It absolutely makes sense. And it's absolutely what we see as well in private practice. Because when they're coming in for ed therapy, it's kind of the parent who maybe identifies less with what the kid is experiencing is the one kind of the driving force. And we hear a lot like, this is my wife, or this is my husband, or this is my co-parent or my ex or whatever. And either the one who maybe identifies more, who isn't the driver of coming into therapy, either can respond with, I wish I had had this opportunity as a kid, or I turned out fine. They'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, true. Like all these kids are going to become independent adults for the most part. You know, no crystal ball, but you can pick stuff up on the streets. It's just faster to have someone sort of guiding you through, right? Instead of the struggle. But we see this dynamic oftentimes when kids are in two different households. The mixed messages that can happen, of course, it comes up in assessment. Oh, sure, sure. Mm Yeah, the mixed household situation is always challenging on many levels, but yeah, it comes up for us as well. Would you guys ever do an assessment without letting the other parent know? Well, we legally can't. Yeah. Yeah. So for us, we have to have, if parents are separated or divorced and there's a court order that they have shared medical decision-making, we cannot assess kids without both parents' consent. Yeah. You know, if one of them does not have medical decision-making via court order, that's totally fair game. I mean, we still try to involve the parent um, as long as the kid is, uh, you know, spending time with them and it's safe and everything, but it's tricky. It is tricky. I've experienced some where one parent wanted it and one parent didn't, and they couldn't move forward because the other parent didn't want it. Mm -hmm. So I feel for all of you that are in those situations right now, but I definitely feel like the beauty of reassessment is there's so much to learn and so much to understand that it's so helpful for those that know how to read it. There's the other thing. And they're open to the results and they're open to the recommendations because we all know that just because we recommend it doesn't mean it's going to be the next step they take. Exactly. Touching on two really important things here. Yes, there is a lot of beauty to it and I'm biased, but I think that's a pretty amazing process to go through. It's a rare opportunity to get such a deep look at your kids functioning, right? Challenges and strengths and personality. And those things change. Those things do change. That's why reassessment can be really valuable um, because kids do change, right? Depending on what's happening in their world and their brains. Um, But then, I mean, the second component, that's a big and important can of worms to open as far as I would call it the accessibility of our work. And Do people know how to read our reports? Are the reports written in a way that people can read? Do we make recommendations that are actually doable and realistic? That's a lot to dig into, but it's super important. 
that are personalized and prioritized for the family? Yeah. So there's some crazy research on this. Um, if we can digress just for a second, then I yeah. think it may be interesting and important that let's talk about like reading level of our reports. So the average reading level in the U.S. is what, like seventh or eighth grade? Oh, I thought it was sixth. I'll go sixth. Yeah, that makes my point even better. So let's go sixth. You know, <laughs> so we write our these reports at a level that is typically at least grad school or higher, mm-hmm. right? So you combine that with the fact that we know pretty certainly that people will not ask questions if they don't understand material, mm-hmm. and y'all see this with kids. It is true for adults as well. People don't ask questions if they don't understand. And then the third component is that we make tons of recommendations for families and the research would suggest that people follow through on maybe two recommendations out of all the report. And usually the first ones, right? Yes. So all that taken together, it's like, I think a lot of us are writing reports that are hard to read too dense, too complex. We don't follow up with families to know if they even understood the material. And then we hit them with a lot of recommendations that may or may not be prioritized and simplified to their kiddos. And that's a pretty wicked combination if we're trying to help families. It's this double-edged sword because on the one hand, people are paying money for this. I can see you guys want to provide value and providing value sometimes equates more words on the page, right? Potentially. A lot of us think that. A lot of us think that quantity equals quality. Correct. And then and then the same with the recommendations. You have a kid with ADHD and look, we read the reports from the same people all the time. We know it's a copy and paste in a lot of ways. And these are families that are in such overwhelm from reading something. They don't understand it. They didn't have the time to process it and ask questions and have sort of that follow-up. And it's a very tricky, if you hand off, you know, two recommendations, I can imagine someone being like, but I paid you all this money and that's it. That's all I need to do. But what I think we're really talking about is like, no, here's a bunch of things you can do. But if I could tell you to go and do two things, it's this and this, I think families would appreciate it. Yeah. And that's the approach that we've taken in our practice over the last couple of years is we have a section that we call main recommendations and it's two or three bullet points. Like, basically do this next. If you do nothing else, this is what you need to do. And then we have a section that we call full recommendations that are kind of like bonus. If you have the time and the energy and the resources to pursue these things, these could also be helpful. And I like that. Yeah, I do too. Listen, when I hired a wedding planner, I know I've said this on the podcast or interviews or whatever. At a certain point, I realized about myself, please no more than three options. Oh, sure. The decision fatigue was like overwhelming and it didn't even have anything to do with my child. Like that was just like an event, right? So the emotional component is, I mean, a wedding's emotional, but it's different with your kid. And so I always tell people who I'm working with, please no more than three options, Mm -hmm. ideally two Mm -hmm. of your favorite. (laughs) And like, then we can move on. I'm right with you. Yeah. Decision (laughs) fatigue is so real. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and circling back to the, the reassessment question, I will get folks who come back to my office, let's say three years after the first time I assess their kid and they open with something like, 
I haven't really looked at the first evaluation, but we just want to see what's going on now. Like, you know, it's some version of we didn't even look at this or like we kind of looked at it, but didn't pursue anything. And now we're back. And that just tells me that I failed in some regard that it was either too overwhelming or not clear enough or whatever it may be. Or maybe Jeremy, their only intention was to just get it done. Maybe so. Maybe that was all they ever intended to do. It's not always us is my point. Yeah, it's not. (laughs) It's not always us. But I think on some level, it must be really fun when these kids are coming back for you to see them three or four years later. Because I know we love it when our kids creep back up too. It's always fun to see who they are now, to see what they remember from either what we taught them or something we said at some point, which of course we never remember saying it, but we always go, yeah, that sounds like me. Right. And, but it had this impact, I think is, it's gotta be nice when these kids are coming back for that second round to be able to see what's happened. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm at the point in my career now where I have, there are some kids, I think I've assessed probably four times over the years and it is truly a gift to just see that developmental trajectory and to be able to connect with them at different stages in their life. It's also very humbling though, because things change. Like that's another thing that I have learned doing this for a long time that I used to think that an assessment was the end all be it like, this is we're going to write this in stone. Like This is what's happening with your kid. These are the diagnoses. This is what's going to be helpful. And over time, it's become very, very apparent that an assessment is a a photo. You know, it's a flash, a capture of a point in time, a point in time, because things change. And I've, I've had to have conversations with parents that were very humbling, where I say, like, I missed this earlier on, and we're going to add something here, or we're going to change something here. And that's a tough thing to do as a practitioner sometimes, but also important. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really good to just hear and just refamiliarize ourselves with what needs to be done with assessments and reassessment. So how can people get in touch with you if they're looking for assessments and want to go to Colorado and check you out or listen to your podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Either of those would be amazing. Let's see. So our practice website is coloradocac.com. That's all the clinical stuff. If anybody wants to travel to Colorado, we're happy to hang with you here. And yeah, if there are any practitioners out there, folks who just might be interested in the podcast, it is thetestingpsychologist.com. And the podcast is called The Testing Psychologist. You can find it on all your favorite podcast platforms. But, <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me back. This is always fun. Always glad to spend time with y'all. It's always a good time. And we're going to extend the conversation over on Patreon. We're going to talk about what to do in those tricky situations where the reassessment yields different results or you need to add something and how to navigate that tricky situation with families. So if you're not yet a member of our Patreon community, what are you waiting for? www.patreon.com slash learn smarter podcast. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here and doing this again with us. Can you do our signature sign off, which is have a great week, Smarties? Have a great week, Smarties. (laughs) 